If you don't have a Bible of your own or if you know of someone that needs one, you're welcome to take one of ours. It's not me. You're welcome to take one of ours. We have several on the uh, cart over here. You can welcome to take one and take it with you, give it away, whatever you need to do with that. So in chapter 20, starting with verse 9. He went on to tell the people, I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it out to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the t- tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and, knew, and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. So when I taught sophomore English, one of my very favorite units that I had the opportunity to teach was Shakespeare's Tragedy of Julius Caesar. Now, most of the students, they knew the basic storyline of the play, but they struggled with some of the intricacies involved in the story. So, for example, it was sometimes difficult to convince these students that in spite of his title, that the play really wasn't about Julius Caesar at all. Brutus is the main protagonist, while Mark Antony is the main antagonist. And while that concept all by itself was difficult enough for them to grasp, an even more mind-blowing reality was that Caesar's brutal murder isn't the actual climax of that play anyway. It actually takes place a little bit later in the play. It's, It's Antony's speech to the Roman people. That is the climax of Julius Caesar. So the misconception that many of these students have is that the climax of a story is actually the most action-filled part of the story, and that's not true. Because every good storyteller, they actually understand that the climax, that's when everything in the story begins to converge. It's the part of the story where the audience is the most engaged and where the rising action is ending and then the falling action is about to begin. It's the point in the story where the conflict is at its greatest. Now, there's a reason I'm telling you that today, and it's because today's parable, it is a masterfully told story from Jesus. And so in order for us to understand this story's implications for the Jewish leadership of the day, for the general population of the Jewish people, and even for us today, we have to understand why this parable is located where it is, why it's in, in Luke's gospel where it is, and why Jesus told this particular short story. We also need to understand the structure of this story to get everything out of it. So we're going to begin this morning with Jesus' audience. 
And so in order for us to understand this parable, we have to look back a little bit. We, we have to look exactly what's going on in Luke's gospel before Jesus tells this story. So Jesus has already made his way into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He, he's already wept over Jerusalem because he knows it's going to fall. And he's already gone into the temple and cleansed it of all the money changers. And so these events, they, they had caused a lot of stir among the Jewish leadership. And so the three main groups of the Jewish leadership, they had gotten together. The, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they had gotten together and they were upset at Jesus for all the things that he had done. And so they interrupted this teaching session that he had going on. And they asked him a very important question. By whose authority, they say, by whose authority, Jesus, are you doing what you've been doing? Who told you that you could enter into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey the way you did that? And who gave you the authority to go into our temple and behave the way that you behaved? Those people had our permission and you told them to go away. Well, Jesus refuses to answer their question. At least he doesn't answer it the way they wanted it to be answered. Instead, he told today's short story, this parable. But you see, we need to understand something, that this story, it's not a new story, especially for these Jewish people. It's an old, old story, a story every single person listening to Jesus that day tell it would have known. But Jesus, he, he takes that old story and he places it into a new context because he wants these people to see the truth of who God is. So listen to the original story. It's found in Isaiah chapter 5. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it, cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines. He built a tower inside it and dug out a wine vat. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew wild grapes. So now you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for it to do for my vineyard than that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow bad grapes? Now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so that it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so it will be trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed, and thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed. God expected righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. So these people knew that story, folks. And in Isaiah's story, it was God who planted the vineyard. He had worked extremely hard in order for this vineyard to produce these good grapes. Grapes that could, would bear such excellent fruit that, that the most delicious wine on the planet would be made from them. But instead, that vineyard, it bore wild grapes. And wild grapes are worthless and they can't be used for anything. They can only be thrown out. And so this vineyard owner, God... He made the most difficult decision he could, and that was to tear down this vineyard because of its failure to make good produce. And so Isaiah's story, it, it really is the harsh reality. If you look at the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. 
But you see, Jesus, he, he has this other vineyard story. It's part two. Or perhaps it's kind of a retelling of Isaiah's story. And it has a much, much larger vision of God's plan and what he's doing in the world for the people. And so Jesus' story, it has several different characters for us to pay attention to. There's the vineyard owner. Then there are the renters who have come in and they've rented the vineyard from the owner. Then there are the slaves who are sent to collect the owner's share of the produce. And then there's the vineyard owner's son. And so this story, it begins in a very familiar setting for Jesus' audience. In our culture, in our setting, it's very common for a farmer to live either on the property he farms or very close to his farmland. But in the first century Middle East, that wasn't the case. It was actually just as common for the landowner to live some distance away from the farm, maybe, maybe an entire country over. And, and that's what has happened here. This vineyard owner, he has gotten everything going. He's then taken his property and he has leased it to some renters and then he moved away. And it's very clear from the outset that the owner, he, he fully expects to receive his fair share of the produce when it's time to sell. So as would have been typical in that day and time, at the right time of year, a slave was dispatched from his home and gone to the vineyard so that he could receive the master's share of the yield. And that's when this story becomes a little unsavory. That's where the rising action begins. The first slave is beaten. The second slave is beaten and insulted. The third slave is wounded and then thrown out of the vineyard. And so with every slave who shows up to do the master's bidding, the, the violence is perpetuated and, and the renters begin to escalate the violence. A beating is bad enough, isn't it? But then a beating and being insulted is worse. And then finally being beaten and then to be thrown completely out of the vineyard, that's even worse still. So, so listening to this story, Jesus' audience, they, they begin to wonder as they hear what is taking place. How much? How much is too much? How many slaves have to be sent in and be beaten and insulted and wounded and mistreated before this owner is going to do something about it? This owner has the right, doesn't he, church? He has every right to go out and to contact the authorities. He has the right to, to send in a large group of men, well-armed men, who could storm into this vineyard and reclaim it as rightfully his own. He has the right to have these rogue renters arrested and imprisoned for their mistreatment of his slaves and their unlawful way of dealing with him. And so with each and every passing day, with each slave who is sent out and return abused and misused, this tension continues to mount. And Jesus doesn't specifically say this, but we know this owner must be getting angry. He, he must be getting completely fed up with what's going on in, his, in this story. His slaves and the disregard that he has for himself, he has to do something about it. What is his next step? And that leads us to the climax of this story. But here's the thing, church. If we're not careful, we're going to miss it. We're going to be like my sophomore students who, who didn't understand what's happening because to those of us who have heard this story more than once, it, it almost seems anticlimactic. But we shouldn't let our familiarity with this story keep us from being completely in awe of what takes place. You see, the greatest tension in this story is found in verse 13. The vineyard owner, he, he's completely at his wit's end. He asks what seems like on the surface a very simple question. 
What can I do? Four undemanding words that carry a whole lot more weight than we can possibly ever imagine they carry. Because throughout this story, the, the vineyard owner, he has experienced a lot of garbage. He's angry and he's frustrated. He's been rejected. He's pained. He has every right. He has every right to insist that justice is served and done swiftly. What can I do, he asks. I can send in a gang of ruffians to teach those renters a lesson. What can I do? I can call the law on those idiots and show them who they've been messing with. What can I do? I can bring down the wrath of God so severely on these morons that it's going to make their heads spin. And yet to our complete and utter astonishment, when this climatic question is asked, what can I do? It's followed by a painful pause. The owner, he pushes his anger away from himself. He pushes this anger as far away as he can. There's a Greek word for what this owner does. It has no English translation. In the Greek, it's called macrothumia. And we typically see it translated as patience or long-suffering. But you see, it's a whole lot more than that, church. It literally means long anger. The owner, he, he takes all of this anger he has the right to, and he pushes it away from himself in order to do something that makes no sense. He's, he's giving these renters the benefit of the doubt. So he asks this question, what can I do? And he pushes away this answer that's unfathomable to anybody sitting in this room. I'll send my son. The son that I love more than anything else. I'm going to send him. And maybe, just maybe, these renters will respect my son. And so we hear this, this answer and we're like, okay, this could work, I guess. If the son is a military leader, I'm, I'm with you now. If he has plenty of brute force at his command, then the landowner's right, isn't he? These renters will respect this beloved son. But that's not what happens, is it, church? The son, he arrives and he doesn't command a huge military battalion. He shows up not with a hundred mercenaries at his command or he doesn't even call down 10,000 angels. The father sends his son alone without a military backup, without any special military forces training. He just sends the son who fully represents the father in every way. This, this decision is so completely outside the realm of possibility for this first century audience that they're listening. 
Because this is a society that used, it's used to war. They're used to bloodshed. They're, they're used to swift judgment. And this father, he, he's so foolish. He's so foolish, he, he sends his son. So the son journeys forth without an escort to meet up with these renters. Now, the thing is, the renters, they know this world. They, they know their world. They're carefully watching down the road. They, they're anxious, anticipating what is the owner's next move, that they're aware that this owner, he might be up to something now. And when he doesn't do what's expected of him, well, they go ahead and do what's expected of them. Maliciously and selfishly, they, they treat the son the same way they've treated everyone else. They, they again escalate their behavior one more time. They don't just settle for the beating. They, they don't just settle for humiliation. They, they don't just settle for throwing him out of the vineyard this time. They commit all of those things, sure, but they do one more. They also kill him. And the reason they do such a terrible thing, it's located in this single word in verse 14. It says they do it so they can receive the son's inheritance. According to the Jewish custom of the day, squatters who control property for three years, they can gain the property for themselves. And since there's such a great distance between the landowner and the property, then the time is on their side. They've already put the owner off for a considerable amount of time. And now, now that they've killed this son, then perhaps, just, just perhaps, they can finally obtain the entire property all for themselves. So why did Jesus tell this particular story? Why this story in response to by whose authority did you act? And the answer, it's all tied up in what the kingdom of God actually is, church. Who owns the kingdom and who's going to be the ones to inherit the kingdom? The kingdom of God, it's not the promised land. The, the kingdom of God's not the city of Jerusalem. The, the kingdom of God, it's not even the temple mount where all of the sacrifices take place. The, the kingdom of God, you see, it, it flows from the very heart of God, the Father himself. And, and the kingdom of God, it's made up of people flung all over this globe. People of God who are faithful to this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That they're faithful to this God of Moses and the prophets. That the kingdom of God is a far, far greater inheritance than any land or any entire nation could ever possibly be. And so Jesus has the authority because he's the heir. He's the one who gets to decide how this kingdom of God is divvied up. And you see his decision according to Luke chapter 20 it's that only the people who have an attitude like the Father, only those people inherit the kingdom. Uh, only people who, who have asked this same question that the Father asked, what can I do? And, and then decide to show this long anger. Only those who have been able to show grace instead of vengeance. 
Only those who are able to show mercy instead of ruthlessness, only those people inherit the kingdom of God. And apparently, according to Jesus, there's a litmus test. It's a litmus test that helps us understand who those people are. This litmus test is called the cornerstone. And according to Jesus, every single person on this planet, they will encounter this cornerstone in one of two ways. We either willingly fall on it and we're broken or it falls on us and we're crushed. And so church, when you and I choose to fall on it, when, when we choose to be broken, we're showing humility. We're showing spiritual growth within ourselves. We're, we're showing that we have learned Macrothumia, we've learned long anger. We're showing that we can be trusted to inherit along with the Son. We're showing that we've learned, we've learned how to answer the Father's question correctly. What can I do? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the peace and grace of Jesus rest on your hearts. Amen.